thanks, Father, for the morning. Thank you for your, this day. Thank you uh, for your grace in giving us this day. It's a gift from your hand. We're thankful for it. And would you guide us and shape us? We're going to be talking theological truths and counseling principles today. Might they feed not just our mind and our intellect so that there's a greater awareness of what your scriptures say about these things, but might these truths feed our hearts so they captivate us and enthrall us with you and give us a greater vision of your transcendence and your wonder. And might that lead us to our own transformed lives and hearts and might it equip us to help others who also need transformation. So would you guide us and direct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're looking this morning at the question seven, the Trinity. And we want to think uh, particularly about this question, explain the doctrine of the Trinity, provide its biblical basis. So a number of the questions are going to have multiple components. And really the the big thing that needs definition here is obviously the word Trinity. And we've given you this definition that God exists eternally in three distinct and separate persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet those three persons exist at one in in one God or as one God. Um, Some have called this the triunity. So the word trinity actually just focuses on the the threeness, which is not wrong, but it excludes the oneness of God. So some will use the word triunity or triune God. And that really actually more approximates what we're trying to communicate with this truth that God is three in person, yet one in Godhead. And so that that word, the triunity, gets at that. B.B. Uh, Warfield says, There is only one and true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons. Thank you, Lee. <clears throat> the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. Uh, again, so there's nothing uh, in the three persons in the Godhead uh, in which one is greater and one is lesser. So they are all co-equal in nature, in character, in personhood, um, but they are distinct in function and in personality, and they make up the one Godhead. So let's, uh, let's think about some of the key points here. Uh, God is one in essence, uh, that oneness we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord, is, the Lord uh, is our God, the Lord is one. So right in the beginning in the Pentateuch, we see the oneness of God. Um, and that gets reaffirmed uh, all kinds of places in the New Testament as well. Our Savior is off, often speaks about those things. Um, speaks about the unity with the Father. So in John 10:17, for instance, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. So he's, he's conjoining himself to the Father and giving indication that there's more than one person in the Godhead. We don't have a full triunity there, but there is, uh, he is equating himself with God, connecting himself to God. And then in verse 30, the classic verse, I and the Father are one. So while they are distinct in personality, there is a son and there is a father, yet there is a oneness in the Godhead. Uh, This statement 
uh, from the Witty Handbook of Theology uh, is very helpful. It means that uh, when we talk about uh, God's oneness, it means that all three persons possess the summation of the divine attributes, yet the essence of God is undivided. Oneness in essence also emphasizes that the three persons of the Trinity do not act independently of one another. So when when one member of the Godhead makes a decision, all the members of the Godhead are involved in that or all, and all are unified in it. There's no separation. One is not unilaterally compelling a decision on the others that the others are resistant to. So think particularly about the Father's plan for redemption. He didn't go to the Son and say, I'm going to send you to earth um, to assume the mantle of manhood and you're going to die on the cross. And Jesus didn't say, no, no, no. He was in full agreement uh, with the Father in that plan. Uh, Nor does one member of the Trinity operate distinctly from and apart from Uh, as a lone ranger, as it were, from the other members of the Trinity. They all act in harmony with one another. So God is one in essence. At the same time, God is three in person. That is, God does not exist in three different ways or modes, but he exists in three distinct persons that are unified as one God. Um, Again, from uh, Louis Burkhoff this time. In God, there are not three individuals alongside of and separate from one another, but only personal self-distinctions within the divine essence. Um, So we see the the personhood, the three distinct persons in multiple places. Uh, We see it at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, Being baptized, Jesus, that's one member of the Godhead, came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God, a second member of the Trinity, descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son. That means the father is speaking in whom I'm well pleased. So there in two verses, you have all three distinct persons of the Godhead uh, referenced. A n- number of other passages there, I think um, those are given for you as well. One of my favorite, First Peter chapter 1, and we'll allude to this a couple of other times as well. First Peter chapter 1, uh, Paul, uh, Peter writing to the scattered churches, he says in verse 2, he's writing according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So again, all three members of the Trinity. And there he's focusing not just on the distinction and the members of the Trinity, but also focusing on the fact that they are all um, working together in the process of uh, justification and and, uh, redeeming sinners. We find uh, we find the truth of the Trinity in the Old Testament. In, the Old Testament does not give us as nearly a, a full uh, description of the Trinity or the Triunity, uh, but there are references to the, the Trinity throughout the Old Testament and certainly a, a multiplicity of persons within the Godhead. Uh, so one of the names of God is indicates plurality. So the name Elohim, the first name that's used of God in Genesis chapter 1, that's a plural. So the singular is El, God. Uh, Elohim is God's. 
And so that in itself is giving us a hint to the nature of the of the triunity of God. Again, it's you can't say Elohim means triunity. It doesn't. It simply means plurality. Um, and it doesn't mean that God is multiple gods. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But it does indicate that there is something unique within the Godhead, that there is a plurality there. Um, some of the titles uh, of God are used in plural form. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, your God, Isaiah chapter 54, your maker. God himself uh, speaks of himself in the plural. So in Genesis chapter 1, he says that he is going to create man in our image and in our likeness. So right in the very first chapter, right at the beginning of creation, we have a revelation of the Godhead that says there's plurality. Now, don't read 126 and say, ah, there's the Trinity. We don't know that. Interestingly, in Genesis 1, we have the Father and we have the Spirit, but we don't have the Son, right? So the Spirit is moving over the surface of the waters, right? So we have the Spirit mentioned in chapter 1. We have plurality mentioned in chapter 1. So we know there's plurality from Genesis 1. We don't know distinctly and overtly that the Trinity is in view in chapter 1, though it is obviously hinted at. Psalm 2, significant psalm, God speaks of having a son, and that psalm is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, um, and that's the eternal sonship of Christ that's referenced in Psalm 2. So he has always been a son, the father has always been a father, and they have always functioned within that relationship to one another. And again, that's not a hierarchical in the sense of the father has domination over the son and control over the son that the son at times would resist and push against. No, they're in harmony. It just it just refers to their role and function, um, not so much to hierarchy and um, and supremacy. Um, other passages ref- re- reflect that there is more than one person within the Godhead. So we find, uh, oh, this is this is a cool one. I was just looking at this re- this morning, Psalm 45, and that gets quoted uh, and applied to Jesus in Hebrews chapter one, Psalm 45, um, speaking about the Davidic, about David, the Psalm, uh, the, the King. But then there's a transition in verse six where he stops speaking about David and he starts thinking about something that is greater than David. So he says in verse 6 of Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So now he's moved from a Davidic, like David throne, to another kind of throne that is eternal. And he says, It is a scepter of righteousness, excuse me, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved, verse 7, righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So there we have the Father anointing the Son for this eternal kingdom. And we know that it's hinted at in Psalm 45. If you just had Psalm 45, you would say there's something bigger going on than just David. There's... There's something going on within the Godhead. It would be vague, but Hebrews tells us the fulfillment of it and and applies this text to Jesus. Um, So we find um, Christ 
uh, alluded to in Psalm 45 as a member of the Godhead. There is unity to the Godhead. Again, this is the classic passage, um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. What's interesting there, when he says the Lord our God is one, he uses a distinct and particular word for one that allows for for plurality within oneness. So there, there is a Hebrew word that excludes plurality that would that would emphasize a solitary oneness. That is, the God is only one. So there's only one person within the Godhead. But that's not the word that is used in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy affirms monotheism without emphasizing Unitarianism. So that's that's important. Um, that may not need to show up in your answer, but it's good for you to have in your head, and it's an important theological point. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, and you're familiar with that passage, is obviously a very important one. The New Testament also gives evidence to the triunity of God. Uh, there is one God, and we find that in multiple places. Um, Mark chapter 12 quotes Deuteronomy. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, multiple places. We also understand that there is more than one person within the Godhead. We've already alluded to John chapter 10. Uh, <clears throat> the Father and I are one, he says, in verse 30. And then again in verse 33, he says, uh, the Jews answered him, uh, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was making himself co-equal with the Father. He was making himself part of the Godhead. Not making himself, but he was revealing himself as part of the Godhead. And they fully understood that, and that's what they were resistant to. Uh, we've already alluded to First Peter chapter 1. All the members of the of the triune Godhead are referred to as God. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, the Father is called God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, he's called God. Revelation chapter 22, it's, it's all through the New Testament. Uh, the Son himself is called God. So in, um, in Mark chapter 10, and you're likely familiar with this, uh, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That that title, the Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the book of Mark. It's one that he uses regularly, and it's a one it's one that is um, revelatory of his messianic position. And we find that in Daniel chapter seven. Uh, and he's he's alluding back by the by that title to Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. That's the father and was presented before him and to him. That is the son, the son of man was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion, which is an everlasting dominion and which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, so he is identified. Jesus in Mark chapter 10 is identifying himself as the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, 
that res- that it has a right to worship and praise and glory and the position of the one who will take over the Davidic throne. Um, so it's a really significant uh, passage. It is really clear from Mark chapter 10 uh, that Jesus is within the Godhead. And of course, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that whole passage that flows down for about 18 verses um, is really critical to understand that the Son is a member of the Godhead. No question about what Christ's claims are. The Spirit is also called God throughout the New Testament. Uh, Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God is mentioned 20 times. In Romans chapter 8. And it is really clear all through that passage. That that he is deity and he functions as deity. So within this Godhead all of, all of the members, all of the persons. And when we say person, you're understanding. And we've talked about this previously. But you're understanding we're not talking body and flesh, right? So when we're talking about personhood. We're talking about the things that make us people, thank you Lee. We're talking about the things that make us people, that make us what we are. So um, emotion, will, intellect, ability to communicate, ability to receive communication, things like um, loving and hating, um, having desires. All those things are, are what make us persons. And that when we're talking about the personality of God, that's what we're talking about. So we're not talking skin and bones, uh, but we're talking about the nature of personhood. So um, all of the persons, all the three persons of the Godhead are all referred to as God, and yet they are distinct from one another. So they have distinct relationships. So again, from the Moody Handbook of Theology, the Father is not begotten, nor does he proceed from any person. The Son is eternally begotten. So that doesn't mean that the Son was born, but He has eternally existed in relationship to the Father as a Son. Um, And the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. So they didn't create the Spirit, though the Spirit comes from them. The Spirit is said to be sent both by the Father and the Son to us, after Christ's ascension to heaven. Um, But that doesn't mean that the Spirit is created. Notice we're saying that He is eternally proceeding from. Again, these different relationships do not imply inferiority nor superiority within the Godhead. They are instead expressing the nature of relationships within the triunity and they denote the the nature of, of roles within the Godhead. So they have distinct roles, distinct functions. The functions are not inherently superior or inferior to the other. They're all working um, together in co-equality with one another, though they are still different. And I'm being somewhat precise, and theologians are always being somewhat precise, and... um, There's a vagueness to it, and I understand that. But if you stray away from the way I'm talking, you you fall into heresy. And um, and there is a vagueness to it because I say, you know, the son eternally proceeds from the father. So he's eternally begotten by the father, yet he's not created. What does that mean? I mean, I can give you those words. But after that, I'm kind of stuck. Um, So... um, there we are. And there's, 
that speaks to the transcendence of God. He's not like us. And He's so much greater than we are. Um, three persons are equal in authority. So the Father is recognized as authoritative and supreme. So we find that, I've alluded to 1 Corinthians 8 a couple of times. Let me just remind you of what it says. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Um, For even if there are so-called gods, I'm starting in verse 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And there we have a a nuance of how creation came, right? So the Father dictated, it comes from Him, it emanates from His authority as the Father, and it's mediated through the Son. So the Son is the active agent, although All members of the Trinity are said to be involved in creation. But here this verse is emphasizing that it was the Son that was the active agent in creation. So the Father is authoritative, supreme. Yet the Son is also recognized as equal to the Father in every respect. And this is is what really torqued, that's an important theological word, that's what really torqued the the Pharisees, right? Because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And they hated that. Uh, so he says in John 5:21, for instance, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. So the Father and the Son both have capacity to live and give life. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That's an important verse. So that's the verse you want to go to like with your Jehovah's Witnesses friend. When they come knocking on your door, that's the verse. If you don't honor the Son as, as you honor the Father, then you're not honoring the Father. They, have, they are co-equal in nature and they are co-equal in their right to worship and adoration. Um, so that's that's a really, really important verse. Um, and likewise, the Spirit is recognized as equal to the Father and the Son. Um, and in fact, Jesus says, um, I will ask the Father, John fourteen sixteen. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And then He he goes on and proceeds. And what He tells the disciples in the upper room is, it's better that I go away so that you have the Spirit. So, you know, Jesus in in His humanity was in a localized form, but the Spirit doesn't have that limitation. And the Spirit is everywhere and always everywhere with all believers. And so it's the benefit. He's not coming with more power than Jesus, but he is coming not localized like Jesus in in his incarnation was localized. And so he can be with us forever. And he comes with all of the authority of heaven, all of the authority of the Godhead, all of the ability of the Godhead. All three persons of 
the Trinity are active in all of the great acts of God in history and redemption. And we won't walk through all of these passages, but we have um, all three members of the Godhead involved in creation. So we have the Father in Genesis 1. We have the Spirit in Genesis 1. What is that about? Verse 6, I think. Um, Colossians 1 makes clear that it's Jesus that also that's involved in the creative process. Uh, we have all three members of the Trinity involved in the Incarnation. So, right, obviously Jesus is involved in the Incarnation. And how was He conceived? How, was Mary, how did Mary conceive Jesus? Spirit, right? And whose plan was it? The Father. So all of them are involved in the Incarnation. We've already identified that they are all involved in the baptism of Jesus. They're all involved in the process of atonement. They're all involved in the resurrection. It's interesting. There's one passage. I uh, can't remember if it's the Romans 8 passage or not. We know that uh, the scriptures are clear that um, that the Father had raised the Son. Romans 8:11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So there in Romans 8, we find the Spirit. Um, also raising Christ from the dead. And there's one passage, and it escapes me where it is, but there's one passage that identifies that Jesus raises himself. right? So he's, he is self-existent as a member of the Godhead, and he is life-giving to himself even when his physical body was dead. Um, which is pretty, pretty remarkable, obviously. Uh, we've talked about salvation from 1 Peter chapter 1. All are involved in the indwelling of the Spirit. So the, fa- the Son asks the Father to send the Spirit. And that's how we get the Spirit. Um, that's John 14, 15 to 23. All, all are involved in the process of Scripture and revelation. Uh, all are involved in prayer. So the Father receives prayers. <clears throat> this is so cool. Romans 8. And I think you're probably familiar with this. I hope you're familiar. In Romans 8... In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For when we do not know how to pray as we should, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too weak for words. So there are those times when you don't know, you're just at a loss, right? I was praying the other day. Lord, I've come to you hundreds of times with this request, and I'm just stuck to know what to ask. But I know what the end game needs to be for the salvation of this individual. But I don't know the process. Would you act? And the Spirit takes that vague, unknowing prayer and takes it to the throne of the Father and tells the Father, this is what we need to do. And would you do this? So that's the Spirit's work. He takes our prayers, translates them, fills in the gaps, corrects the theology, asks what we need to ask, and then takes it to the Father. Verse 34, same chapter. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So in the same way that the Spirit takes our prayers, the Son is also at the throne, at the right hand, the position of authority, co-regent with the Father, and he leans over and tells the father, do you see, do you see our son Terry? 
would you accomplish this for him? And he always prays fully in the will of God, so we know that whatever he asks, the Father's going to do. So he knows exactly what I need in my moment of weakness, and that's what he asks, and that's what the, the Father accomplishes. So we have the entire triunity of God of the Godhead hearing our prayers, acting on our prayers, and praying and receiving prayers for us. Uh, it's really, really astounding, isn't it? Um, other key scriptures, and we're not going to walk through these, but just some others that are going to be helpful for you. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, um, is a really significant passage as it relates to the Trinity, triunity as well. Um, so, sum it up. These truths... Combined to produce a picture of God wherein all the members of the Godhead work together, each in their own divine roles, to produce a people that are justified and sanctified to forever glorify the Son. I am reticent to try and do pictures um, about uh, the Godhead and the triunity, but this, this little graph, and it's an, this is an updated version, but this has existed for centuries um, I think is, is a really helpful kind of a guide for us. So here we have the circle represents the unity of the Godhead, right? So all of that is within this circle is the Godhead. Yet there is distinction in personality within that one Godhead um, such that the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. And yet they are said to be in each other. So they're distinct and they're separate, yet there is unity within them. All of them are God, each of them co-equal in authority and position within the Godhead. So the circle indicates that there's not authority that subjugates one to the other, though there is distinction within the Godhead. Each of them works for the glory of the other, making up this one one Godhead. I, I just have found that to be a really, really helpful way to picture it. Um, please stay away from saying things like, um, Jesus is like a three-leaf clover. Jesus is like an egg. No, he's not at all like an egg. <laughs> um, just about every analogy that you're going to find in creation breaks down and leads you into some kind of heresy. So just be really careful about that. The problem with those kinds of things like, um, like the egg, the yolk is not the white. And the white is not the shell, right? So there are three parts, but they're distinct parts that are unrelated to the others. Um, he is not like water, solid, vapor, and um, liquid, right? That's modalism. So he can only, water's only one of those things at one time. It's either liquid or solid or vapor, but it's not all at all times. So that... Li- that leads you to the the ancient heresy of modalism. So you want to stay away from that. Yes. Um. So that's almost ancient history for me. <laughs> um. <laughs> then there are no grandkids yet, and probably won't be. But that's a different story. Um, so I try and use the same words at a simple level without 
dumbing it down unnecessarily. So I would, I would use words like God is, there's only one God. There are three persons in one God. I think there are some things that are somewhat analogous, but you got to be careful. So like in marriage, mom and I are one. But we're obviously different. There's two different personalities. Now, you can't push that one very far, but there is there is something of that analogy there. And so the kids can see that. In a, in a good marriage, they can see that, right? So that there's a, a oneness and a harmony and a unity. I'm, we're, we're one, uh, one flesh. Um, but there is distinction. There's distinction in roles, and that those distinction in roles just means distinction in roles and not not supremacy, inherent supremacy. Um, again, you've got, to, you've got to articulate that carefully. But you can explain those things even to a five-year-old. And, and don't be afraid of saying, I know this is complicated because I don't understand it either. Yeah, so here's, here's things. And then you, you just start building on it as they get older. Uh, and then, you know, they get to adulthood and you still say, well, here's where it is, but I, that, I'm stuck now. I can't go any further. Um, so, yeah, I think that's we need to be really careful when we're doing anything, even like just explaining the gospel with the kids. Use gospel words. I, I even avoid words like don't don't tell your kids, ask Jesus into your heart. That's not helpful. Tell them you need to you're a sinner. What does sin mean? And you explain what sin is. Do you ever do that? Yeah. Does dad ever do that? And they're not going to be happy to say yes, but they'll say yes. All right, can I say yes? Can I say dad's a sinner? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. We talk about forgiveness, right? I, you need to forgive your sister. Your sister needs to forgive you. So we, I mean, those were words that were common in our home. So you need forgiveness. The only one really that can forgive you is God. How does he do that? And explain the cross. You're using simple words that are in their vocabulary, but you're not dumbing it down. Um, so... I, th- I think as much as we can, whenever we're teaching any any theological truths, we want to um, use biblical words. Keith put together a little dictionary of theological words for our youth, our uh, children's ministry workers. Do you guys still use that in children's ministry? He did that like 15 years ago. You haven't seen it in a while. There's um, there's several books. I, th- I want to say Kelly Capick has written one on um, like bite-sized theology for little theologians or something like that. And it's just taking these big truths and and communicating them in simple terms. Um, and I think I alluded to it last time, Packer's book, Concise Theology. It's like 115 or 150 pages. I don't remember what it is, but it, it's short. And it's like a page on all these theological principles and Packer, um, Packer can be really deep, but he can also write with great simplicity. And, and that's the value of that particular book. And so that might be a, a help for you. Mike, I Michael. The, uh, <clears throat> if the heart had three chambers instead of four, that might be a close representation. Yeah, I think you're, um, like you're like the three-leaf clover on that one. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be really careful about analogies. <laughs> They just invariably break down. What's the benefit of the Trinity? A uh, number of things. We've already alluded to a couple of them. The Trinity provides an opportunity to express his attributes 
even apart from creation. So things like his love, his joy, his faithfulness, his fellowship, his family, his unity, his authority. So think about it this way. If God is only one, how does he demonstrate love in eternity past? Because there is no one to receive the expression of love. And how can he denote... So it takes at least a duality to be able to express love. So love has to be given to another and another has to receive it. But the triunity adds another dimension so that there is more than one that is the reception of love. So it doesn't become an idolatrous kind of expression of love, but there's harmony even amongst a multiplicity of people within the Godhead. How is there fellowship within the Godhead if God is only one and not three? And so you have avenues for God to express his attributes in eternal past because there's a triunity. Um, And he gets to experience wholeness. Michael Reeves, uh, and I'll allude to that book in just a minute. uh, Michael Reeves is so terribly helpful uh, on that uh, on that aspect. The Trinity demonstrates transcendence. We've already alluded to that. He is God and we are not. And the more you dive into this, the more you see his grandeur, his beauty, his magnificence. Uh, Transcendence is a really helpful word. The Trinity is the means by which the Father is revealed to mankind. Again, Michael Reeves is helpful to us. Um, From his book, Delighting in the Trinity, page 77, he writes this. Is this in your notes? Okay, well, let me read it anyway, because it's good and we have time. If God was not the father, he could never give us the right to be his children. If he did not enjoy eternal fellowship with his son, one has to wonder if he would have any fellowship to share with us or if he would even know what fellowship looks like. If, for example, the son was a creature and had not been eternally in the bosom of the father, knowing him and being loved by him, what sort of a relationship would the father could the father share with us? If the Son himself had never been close to the Father, how could he bring us close? If God was a single person, salvation would look entirely different. He might allow us to live under his rule and protection, but at an infinite distance, approached perhaps through intermediaries. He might even offer forgiveness, but he could not offer closeness. And since by definition he would not be eternally loving, would he deal with the price of sin himself and offer forgiveness for free? Most unlikely. Distant hirelings we would remain never to hear the Son's golden words to the Father. You have loved them even as you have loved me. That only makes sense because of the triunity of God. Um, So really helpful. Three common errors about the Trinity. Tritheism, so three persons of the Godhead are all God, but they are not one God. So they're separate and distinct. So it's almost like um, polytheism, if you will. Uh, Modalism, there's one God, but he exists in different modes and different manifestations. Um, So he is sometimes as a son, he is sometimes a spirit, and he is sometimes a father, but he is not always all at the same time. That apparently is the position of T.D. Jakes. Um, 
Arianism. The Son is subordinate to the Father. They are not co-equal, leading to a denial of the deity of Christ. That was originally taught by Tertullian, and then Origen, and then Arius. Um, So it teaches the eternal subordination of the Son. And we'll talk about that in just a minute when we get to the hypostatic union. Um, We acknowledge that the Son in His humanity subordinated Himself to the Father, but He doesn't eternally subordinate Himself in that way, in that the Father is not superior to Him. They are co-equal in every aspect within the Godhead, though they have distinct and particular roles. That is obviously um, embraced by Jehovah's Witnesses. That's, that's one of the things that they particularly embrace. And that's answered by... John chapter 5, right? Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That's really critical. The Son and the Father are equal, both deserving of the same kind of worship. Um, Really critical. John Piper, in his outstanding book, The Pleasures of God, there is only one fountain of lasting joy, the overflowing gladness of God in God. Without beginning and without ending, without source and without cause, without help and assistance, the spring is eternally self-replenishing. From this unceasing fountain of joy flow all grace and all joy in the universe. Let everyone who is thirsty come. And isn't that good news that we can come to him? Um, Lots of resources I've given you there. I cannot commend highly enough Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, I had a friend probably about 10 years ago when that book came out and uh, he read it. He'd seen a review on it from a trusted reviewer and he bought it and read it and he said, ah, this sounds too good to be true. If I buy you a copy, will you read it? It's like free book, sure. <laughs> and I, I inhaled it. It was a bomb to my soul. So helpful. He just thinks about the Trinity in biblical ways, but in ways that haven't been often discussed. And just so, so very, very helpful. And I will say, we'll talk about Michael Reeves in the next session as well. Um, if you see Michael Reeves on a book, he is a really profound thinker. And I've not read a book that I haven't said, wow, this was really helpful. So if Michael Reeves is writing it, uh, you need to buy it and read it and partake of it.